This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Chase and Scout. Have you been searching for the perfect amulet or talisman to carry you through your day and guide you at night? Check out Chase and Scout. It's studio-created jewelry, which means each piece is individually made to order just for you. Handcrafted for the strange and the beautiful, find your personal power piece online at chaseandscout.com. The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Conjured Saint. It's a spectacular online resource for handcrafted magical artifacts, including ritual oils, sacred bath and body products, and spiritual cleansers. You'll find these and much, much more on theconjuredsaint.com. Even better, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off by using offer code WITCH, that's W-I-T-C-H, at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Go to theconjuredsaint.com and conjure some new magic into your life today. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. I gotta be honest with you. This time of year is always super challenging for me. It's after the holidays, it's the dead of winter, and where I live, it's gray and cold. And even though the days are technically getting longer, they still feel pretty dang short. I'm an Aquarius, so I have a birthday next month to break up some of the blahs. But between now and then, it's sometimes a big struggle for me to stay uplifted. So I try and confront January in two seemingly opposite, yet actually complementary ways. The first way we've talked about quite a bit already, which is to try and manifest as much warmth and light and energy as I possibly can. I do this in lots of different ways. Lighting candles is a big one for me, as you know. Trying to ingest more spices and citrus and hot chocolate. And also being conscious about moving my body more. Right now, I'm in the middle of a 30-day yoga challenge. And that's done through Yoga with Adrian on YouTube. It's totally free, along with hundreds of her other videos. And I really can't say enough good things about her guidance and her style and how it's making me feel. And by the way, this is completely not sponsored or anything. I'm just sharing because I love it and it's been really, really helping me a lot. But the other way I work with January is to embrace it. To let myself be open to its stark and lovely magic. 
and to trust that even though things might seem stagnant or bare on the surface, there's actually all kinds of things percolating deep within. Even though right now the land is hard and largely empty, there are roots and seeds slowly unfurling in the dirt. And so it goes with us too. If you feel like hibernating right now, or as if you're not quite as productive as you'd like to be, accept that and know all kinds of mysterious new ideas and projects and plans are taking root within you, buried deep in the dark. Some of you might be familiar with the concept of the triple goddess, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. It's a concept that was popularized by writers like Robert Graves and Starhawk, and it's a symbol of the phases of feminine energy that the Earth, the Moon, and ourselves cycle through over time. The winter months are definitely the vicinity of the crone, the elder aspect of the triple goddess. The crone is associated with aging and death, wisdom and mystery, darkness and decay. Though witches come in infinite forms, they're often linked to the crone and used to be depicted frequently as gnarled old hags who lived in the heart of the forest. The Greek goddess of witchcraft, Hecate, also pronounced Hecate or Hecata, is sometimes identified with the crone, as well as with crossroads, necromancy, and the dark moon. She's an agent of liminality, meaning that she dwells in the borderlands, betwixt and between realms. And we all know that the most magic happens in the margins. So right now, in these harsh winter months, you might want to try making friends with your inner crone, the parts of you that are quiet and wise, slow and sublime, the parts of you that are buried in the dirt and slumbering in the shadows. You'll undoubtedly find transformational power and deep secret messages if you just lean in close and listen. Today's guest, Katie Haran, is the perfect person to help us wander through our own dark wood. She's an artist whose paintings of wizened witches and costumed crones are as charming as they are alarming. I'm going to talk to her about her wonderful weird work in just a moment, but you know what comes first. Let's check in and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! I've got two messages I want to respond to in this episode because they're somewhat related to each other. The first one is from Magdalene, who writes, How can I cleanse my workspace? I work in a library setting and got my current position when a longtime employee retired a few months ago. I'm still getting settled and cleaning out desk drawers and reorganizing years of stuff. The woman who worked before me was very lovely and had very strong Christian beliefs. She had prayers and biblical quotes around her desk, and she kept a Bible in her drawer. While I feel like most of the energy is good, I still have some feelings from time to time that make me a bit uneasy. 
Obviously, cleansing with the use of a smudge is not an option. There's also only so much actual cleaning of the space I can do due to regulations. I'm sure I can't be the only witch who sits behind a desk. And now let's get to the second message before I answer the first. This one is from Majestic Dawn, and she writes, I just wanted to say thank you for this podcast. I grew up Christian, but have always been drawn to all things new age, magic, and occult. Two years ago, I realized I was an empath, which was the cause of my anxiety. How can I be an empath? And how can crystals and sage help so much? Because they definitely did. And how can I manifest things if I am a Christian? Isn't that against the rules? So I began researching a ton of different religions and practices and decided to make up my own mind. I decided to begin my journey as a Christian witch. To me, this means worshiping the creator, whom I believe is composed of both God and goddess, maintaining my relationship with Jesus and Mary, but knowing that I can be open to all religions as I believe they are all connected at their core. So I love that both of these messages came through at approximately the same time because they bring up a few different things. So first of all, I just want to address once again that the path of the witch is one that you can walk in tandem with any other religion or belief system that you may have. Remember, this is a self-directed path. That means it's an individual path. So yes, it's true that some people have had damaging or uncomfortable experiences with the religion that they grew up in. And so they turn to witchcraft as an alternative to that. And that's completely valid. But you may have heard me refer to myself as Jewish because I was raised Jewish and I also identify as a witch. Both of these things are true. There are some parts of Judaism that don't resonate with me, but there are other parts that I find to be extremely meaningful and which I incorporate into my magical practice. I didn't reject one to become the other. They are both two of the many, many, many sides that make up who I am. Personally, I have issues with all of the major religions. Hell, I have issues with Wicca. That's okay. That doesn't mean there isn't also great wisdom and beauty to be found in all those places too. And I bring this up because Christianity in particular can sometimes get a bad rap from witches. And look, for good reason, there's some really dark and painful history there. But my understanding of Christianity is that at its core, it's primarily about love and compassion and caring for others. So while we might not like how lots of people may have interpreted or politicized certain religions, I believe that at their root, all religions have messages of caring and love and goodness at their center. So Majestic Dawn, I'm really happy that you're finding your way as a Christian witch. I for one don't care what anyone calls themselves. I care about who they are and what they do. And it sounds like you are on a really great path. So let's circle back to that first note. 
Magdalene, it sounds like you believe all of that too, and that it's not necessarily the former employee's religion that you're uncomfortable with. Or hey, maybe it is, you know, that's really your call. But it's sounding to me like there are just some vibes or energies that you'd like to clear. Honestly, it's nice to do this when you're taking over space that was occupied by anyone else in general, whether that's a new desk, a new house, a new gym locker, whatever it is. And you're absolutely right. There are plenty of times when using a smudge or some kind of smoky incense is just not possible. So when you can't use anything like that, A few alternatives that come to mind are, number one, a spray. So you can actually buy a sage clearing spray online or in some witch or herbal shops. A friend of mine did this in her office recently because she was kind of sensing some negativity from one of her coworkers, and she couldn't do incense or a smudge or anything. So a spray was a really nice alternative for her. You can also do a wash with something like Florida water. But if neither of those are an option, a few other things I really love are very, very simple, such as having a few specific gemstones in your place of work. I love to have a quartz crystal for clear, positive energy and a black gemstone like obsidian to absorb negative energy. Another thing that comes to mind is that you can sprinkle a little bit of natural salt in the four corners of your desk or have it in a tiny beautiful little bowl hidden away somewhere on your desk or even draw a salt perimeter. If you can't do the whole desk then just a line at the back of the desk is fine. And essentially, you, you want to be able to keep this salt there as long as you're able. It's a really good clearing and protective element, and you should feel a big difference soon. Now, on to my guest. Katie Haran is a fine artist and an illustrator who lives in Austin, Texas, and whose work has been exhibited throughout North America. Her paintings of witches and female monsters have been featured in books like Fantagraphics Beasts and The Exquisite Book, as well as in numerous publications such as Juxtapose Magazine and New American Paintings. She is also the illustrator of the beautiful book, Literary Witches, A Celebration of Magical Women Writers, which was just released in October from Seal Press. I'm a huge fan of her work, so it was a great joy to get to talk to her using the magic of Skype. Katie Haran, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Aw, I'm so honored that you're here. Although you're not physically here, you have the distinct honor of being my first, like, astrally projected Skype interview. That feels about right and accurate. I, I, I prefer to astrally project myself places, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's so this is appropriate. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier on the environment that way. Yes. So I first became 
interested in your work. That's actually putting it very mildly. Obsessed (laughs) with your work is probably a better way of putting it. In around 2008 or so, I have a blog called Phantasmophile, which I uh, maintain still sporadically, uh, but was definitely doing in earnest back then, starting in 2005. And that had led me to wanting to bring a lot of the artists that I was falling in love with into the real world. And that brought me to curating my first ever art show called Fata Morgana, The New Mm -hmm. Female Fantasists in 2009. And I invited you to be part of the show, Katie. And the piece that you selected for that show is a piece called Feather Magic. Do you remember Uh this? Of course. It was one of the diamond-shaped pieces that I was doing back then. Yes, and I can describe it to you in perfect detail because I fell (laughs) in such love with it that it now lives with me in my house. But I think that piece is a really good entry point for us to start talking about your work and also how your work has evolved. So why don't you start by describing to the best of your recollection what that piece in particular looks like? And and I can certainly help you since I am cheating and have the visual aid right here. I'm glad you said which one it was because I, for some reason, thought you had a piece called Crystal Magic, which is like a sister piece to Feather Magic. Mm. And they're the same idea. It's just a diamond-shaped wooden panel, maybe like, I don't know, 15 inches by 15 inches square. And it's just sort of a group of maybe six women. I'm, I I can't remember Feather Magic if they're cloaked or if they're naked. Oh, they're naked. And not, it's naked ladies. Yes. Okay. Well, they're naked and they're all, they all are very um, real bodied. I mean, that yeah. phrase is really bandied around a lot these days, but you right. know, they're not supermodel skinny. They're real full, normal figures. And they're also wearing skulls as masks, mm-hmm. animal skulls. Yes. Yes. And they are, I believe there's uh, maybe a pile of feathers in the middle and there's this sort of abstracted, I don't know what to describe, cloud sort of thing coming out of it with animal imagery in it, I think. That's the one. This is, this that, is such a fun game. I'm like <laughs> testing you like, on your uh, own work. <laughs> well, also... Verbally describing my work can be really hard sometimes for me. Well, I have to say, uh, just to interject, it's always challenging to have visual artists on the show <laughs> because I want listeners to be able to appreciate their work. And of course, the best thing for anyone to do is to just go, you know, Google you, and, and we'll talk about how they can find you later. But but I think the visuals are really important to convey, and and yours are so powerful and so specific. Um, and just to elaborate, just to help you out a little bit, Katie. So that pile yes. of of feathers. They look to me like they're also forming almost like a visual metaphor for flames or they are kind of stand-ins for flames. So they're in the shape of a fire pit. And then Mm -hmm. the smoke coming off of them is this kind of uh, lacy white lattice work and it looks like an owl spirit is sort of emerging from them. Okay, yeah. I didn't know if there were other animals in there. This is a great place to start talking about my work because – that piece and the pieces I did around it in the sort of year before it and after it were a breakthrough for me. So those are some of my sort of 
uh, most successful pieces to date at that time and also were a huge departure from what I've been doing before. Mm. So so just yeah. to elaborate on the series, and then I want to learn more about why that was a breakthrough. So this was from mm-hmm. a series called In the Deep Dark. And yes. it's a lot of different paintings of gatherings of, I think, primarily female figures mm-hmm. And they're very ceremonial and ritualistic and there's fire and there's crystals and it feels kind of, uh, I'm going to use the word folkloric, like Mm -hmm. your style feels like kind of a mashup of Eastern European fairy tales and and perhaps something a little more contemporary. Uh, Maybe you have better language for it than I do. Um, And you also incorporate a lot of like weaving and tapestries and lace and string as this kind of interesting uh, magic woven if you'll forgive the very obvious (laughs) word uh, woven throughout the work so what is it about that series that helped you break through to use your own word so I got my BFA in 2003 and like right out the gate I was trying to push my work, make my work better. Um, I had tried to be a children's book illustrator, but I'd gotten so many rejections. And then this sort of like lowbrow gallery scene, mostly on the West Coast, took a little notice. And so I started just making fine art. And I was trying so hard to move beyond sort of the cute children's book thing that I was still sort of doing and elevate the work I was doing technically and conceptually. And the breakthrough I had is so mundane, but I decided to fill in the background with color rather than leaving the wood grain that I was painting on. That's, that was the big breakthrough. It was crazy. And then once I did that, I found sort of my, my MO for um, telling the stories I had in my head. So it was a silly technical thing. No, but, but I love that. That's something so simple kind of became this portal you walk through. Right. The backgrounds I was painting was on top of stained wood. So it gave me the opportunity to sand away at places in the paint and have sort of a warmth. I finally found like the ground on which to paint my stories that were in my head. And also around that time is when I really started in a more academic sort of way, understanding paganism, witches, the things that I had kind of liked before, but I started reading about it and I started getting it into my subconscious enough that it could filter into the work in much more grounded ways. Mm. And I also was becoming interested in folk life and folk arts. So that was also filtering into and, and kind of just mushing together. Mm. Do you remember what some of the books are that you were reading at the time or some of the fairy tales that were resonating with you specifically? Oh, yeah. Fairy tales is hard because I I can't remember when I was exposed to what. Sure. But the witch stuff, well, so when I was, this may seem like a really far sort of jump back, but it, it has a point. I'm all about um, meandering through a okay. dark wood. Let's go. I to it. <laughs> when I was a child, I didn't have a traditional grandmother of any sort. My mother's mother had died before I was born, and my father's mother had died when I was about four. So what I had was my step-grandmother, Juliana, and she was French-Canadian, 
jewelry maker, stained glass maker, artist, and witch. You know, she read the tarot cards and she had this incredible book collection. And in this book collection, one day when I was maybe eight, I stumbled upon the Erica Zhang witch's book, mm. the, the big hardback illustrated one. Oh, yeah. I love that book. Yeah. And it blew my mind because especially the page of the illustration of the woman having sex with like the goat man at eight that was like I was like what is happening <laughs> it, it totally blew my mind but um right and just to interject so the illustrator of that book was Joseph A. Smith or Joss A. Smith yes yes they're incredible and and actually in the witchcraft museum um in England they recently had a show of his work <gasps> yeah you can you can Ooh. google it they're incredible illustrations well, so that, that affected me in a very sort of like primal, primordial way as a kid. And I think sort of set the tone for just like an interest or curiosity in anything like occulty or witchy. So around the time that I'm like finding this new style and so fast forward to about 2007, I went to the Strand Rare Book Room and I'm just like looking around and I like look across the room and that book is like sitting up on a table. I was like, oh my God. And I went and it was signed by Erica Zhang. And it was only like $30. Oh. So I bought it. Hell and, yeah, you did. Yeah. And I freaked out and, uh, and I read it. And so that's when I started to understand what the witch is beyond all the things that sort of just the mainstream world sure, thinks. Sure, that she's, she's not just a scary monster right. in the forest. That right. she can be all these other positive things. And yes. do you remember what some of the qualities were about the witch in particular that clicked with you? Um, It was like the solitude of her has always been something that I relate to. The amoralness sometimes, the I'm not necessarily good, I'm not necessarily evil. I operate on my own independent agenda at mm. times. And I, I've always liked her as this sort of neutral figure who can go either way, depending yeah. on what she wants. The book itself with its illustrations of athames and just specific ritual stuff really, it took my witchy interest that I've always had and just gave it specific items and ideas and images to obsess over and this is really cheesy but the other thing that happened around that time is I listened to the audiobook of the Da Vinci Code you know what I love that freaking <laughs> book and I yeah. will defend it to anybody I really really will like it, it's yeah. it's imperfect hey. but hey the amount of goddess energy that Dan exactly. Brown like amplified on a mass scale through that yes. book is is incredible that's where I learned the term sacred feminine I'm seeing they're painting like some kind of cutesy little thing and I'm listening to this concept of the sacred feminine and the divine goddess and I'm just like wait what so I think those two books were huge mm. were instrument and then from there from there I went out and like found everything I I could get my hands on to learn more about Wicca and shamanism and uh, all that stuff. Well, I'm so happy that you brought that up because in a prior episode, it might have even been the last episode, we've gotten remarks about how it's nice to have it validated that 
it can be a pop culture thing <laughs> that acts yeah. as the key that opens the door to the path of the witch that yeah. you know i would say most of us get into our interests because of something that might seem kind of trivial or poppy and yeah. and that's why i'm always a staunch defender of the pop culturization of the witch because yes sure. there can be some downfalls and and some negative byproducts of that for sure but it can also turn a lot of people on to this icon and this archetype and and mm-hmm. this journey i mean the craft must i say more the craft in and of itself for you're talking about the movie the 1990s movie the craft yeah the film the craft starring feruza bulk robin (laughs) tooney nev campbell and i've rachel true rachel true yes yes we got it amazing and huge when i was a teenager and they and that had kind of some proper Wiccan stuff you know they call the corners oh yeah and both Feruza Balk and Rachel True went on to become practitioners and I'm not sure about the other two women but I I know those two have you know Rachel True has an incredible online presence about her spiritual practice and Feruza Balk you can like go online and buy sigils that she's painted and all all this Ah! stuff too yeah good good birthday present that's amazing so getting back to your work, so you're, you're being right. influenced by these books and these different kind of moments in pop culture. And so is that what then started you painting the In the Deep Dark series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I became better versed in, oh, well, what do witches actually do? What does ritual actually entail? And I became really obsessed with finding out, okay, well, so... Okay, there's bones and there's feathers. What else? What other like types of elements do they use so that I could depict that in my work? So the work became about sort of these envisioned or imagined rituals that I imagine taking place in the middle of this specific non-existent deep dark wood. So in the deep dark is just sort of like short for in the deep dark wood. Mm. Because I've always loved the woods and I just was like, there's just these women and they're in the middle of this, this magical wood and this is what they like get up to. Mm -hmm. So it was many paintings and there were different types of women. And had I continued on with the series and and done more, I would have added more sort of species of women into it. But so they were like the regular witches who were naked and masked and then there are these cloaked figures who were sort of genderless who wore these these like black cloaks and masks and then there were the horned women who I did a big painting of them and and I just showed sort of like 20 of them in the woods and they were they were very domestic and very sort of crafty and at the time like the Reading Gay Craft Fair and Indie Craft was a big deal. So I think I was pretty influenced by that. So they were knitting sweaters for trees and playing banjos for goats and things like that. <laughs> um, and then I was going to have another group called the Goat Women, who are these old women with goat horns. And they just lived their lives with these goats. And they, they were more industrious. And they built cabins and fences. And they were always like gardening. But I never actually, uh, I burnt out before I got to them. But mm. I, I had grand plans. Well, maybe in the future, the goat women will come to be. Ugh, 
maybe. And it's, what's really funny is that uh, at that time, like without talking to each other, all these artists, we all just were like, oh, we're going to paint women with horns. That's the thing that <laughs> everybody's going to do. It was in the ether. Um, yeah. I mean, well, it's such a great signifier for wildness. And yes. I think so much of what's happening right now is this reclamation of feminine wildness. And <laughs> that's one of the reasons I think the witch is, is resonating so much with people. So so you mentioned crafts and you mentioned building and you still have quite a lot of elements of like textiles and mm-hmm. fabric arts and fiber arts that are kind of woven through your paintings and it reminds me quite a bit of also feminist art and the birth of the feminist art movement in mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s. You know, I'm thinking specifically of the artist Judy Chicago. And sure. Yeah, she, she for listeners who might not be familiar with her, she's one of the earlier artists to start examining why it was that museums and institutions not only were mostly showing male artists, but were holding up painting and drawing and sculpture as a quote-unquote higher art form than craftsmanship or craftswomanship, um, (laughs) things that were rooted more in domestic arts, things like weaving and pottery and ceramics and so on. And, And a lot of the early feminist artists started working in those more quote-unquote domestic arts forms. Yeah and elevating them to the realm of institutions. And so I love that you incorporate craftsmanship or craftswomanship throughout your pieces. Well, everything you just said is, it's like that could have been an artist statement for me at the time because I was thinking about not just craft, but I was thinking about women's work, which can easily translate to crafts, you know, women's domestic work mending and quilting and the things that women did because they were stuck in the home things that they did because they had to do them to make the household you know work properly but that they also turned into a beautiful art form and that I felt should be much more appreciated and so that's why I put a lot of that stuff into that series it's gorgeous so you said it I mean you said it perfectly Ah, well I'm, I'm really glad and so, so your work then takes another evolutionary step. You have a few different series that come out afterwards, mm-hmm. um, one called Lady Monsters, <laughs> one called Spectre, Spinster, or Widow. And to me, the biggest shift is that you kind of went from these tableaus of several different figures and a lot of different things going on to focusing more on usually one, sometimes two or three, but primary characters. They feel a little bit more yeah. like portraits. Do you think that's yeah. Fair to say, absolutely. That all changed. I, well, I went to the Vermont Studio Center for a residency in 2009, and I had taken with me some further pieces to do for the series of In the Deep Dark. Um, one of which was a large piece that just had a whole bunch of different like ghosts floating around. And like in the piece you have, like in Feather Magic, there are moments in those pieces of in the deep dark where I do this sort of like lacy abstract thing. And I started playing more and more with that on the side just as a break from the super representational, detailed, uh, because for the listeners who haven't seen the work, my work is meticulous and detailed and takes a really long time and it can be very 
very frustrating and annoying to actually make. So yeah, the patterns, the level of patterning yeah. that you have and line work, it's like psychedelic. I mean, it's right. really, really intricate and mesmeric. I get a little obsessed. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks like it's obsessive. <laughs> it is. It's obsessive. And I like, but then I set myself up to do this whole big area covered in pattern. And then I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? And I have, <laughs> and I, <clears throat> I have to finish it. Um, but the lace up I was doing sort of just on scrap paper and just sort of playing around. And so while I was in Vermont, while I was at the residency and I was sort of playing with, with it. And one of the sort of little doodles I was doing started looking like a face. And I was like, Oh, it looks like a face made out of lace. That's weird. So I started sort of expanding on it. And then every single person who came into my studio was like, okay, yeah, you need to stop doing this thing and you need to do this thing because it was, the in the deep dark stuff I, I was done with it but yet I was still yeah. being that that dead horse and this new stuff was fresh so I started playing with it and seeing what kind of forms I can make just out of painted lace patterns and I also started getting into at that time Elizabethan and Renaissance costuming I should say that costume and historical costume has been a love of mine forever and ever mm. and I go through phases I go through big phases so this was a phase with those big lacy collars of the time the strange shapes that women would turn themselves into with the like with the squared off skirts and everything I thought it was so strange and beautiful mm. and so I basically based all the pieces in this new series of basically portraits made out of painted lace patterns it's called lady monsters and they are these lacy, cloudy, yeah. lavish, embellished female monsters. I mean, yeah. they're really unique and striking, and they're beautiful, but super unsettling, too. I love them. They're some of my favorite. And I've sold all but one, and it's, it's the largest piece I've ever done, and it's like it's mine. It's not going anywhere. Um, I'm keeping it. Yeah. And I love how I was like, oh, it'll be like one one figure. It won't be that time consuming. But of course, I decided to make this figure out of like the tiniest little lacy patterns that are ridiculous. And it's just as time consuming as anything else I'd ever done. <laughs> now, you also, in addition to monsters, you do have quite a lot of crones, you know, yeah. grandmothers, older women. What is it about that time of life and especially mm -hmm. that time of, of female life cycle that intrigues you so much? Well, I the first thing is that an old face is such a joy to draw or paint. The planes of the face are more angular. The nose can have much more strange articulations happening. So I always loved painting and drawing older faces. But then I also in my education of all things pagan. Of course, I'd come across the concept of the maiden mother and crone, and I just sort of fell in love with the idea of the crone because she, in, in a mystical sense and in a completely real life sense, older women are overlooked, they're ignored, but if they take advantage of that situation, they can do some pretty amazing things. So. I want to celebrate the crone as being the most powerful of the three phases. And also because she's not celebrated enough. 
Absolutely, especially in American culture where yeah. we everybody still wants to be young and look young and, mm-hmm. you know, 19-year-olds are supposed to be our ideal of the most beautiful and vital and desirable, yep. whereas older people and particularly older women have such treasure and experience and purpose yep. and sense of self and wisdom yes. and Amazing. all the things, all the things. All the things. Yeah, I love that. On that note, Katie, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty obsessed with candles. And that's why I'm over the moon to tell you about Mithras candles. They are my favorite. They're made of pure beeswax and handcrafted by my extremely magical pals in Philadelphia. They have a gorgeous drip style that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. They smell like honey-scented paradise, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Mithras candles are a perfect addition to any home or sacred space, and I can't recommend them more highly. They're available now at MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm speaking with Katie Haran. So Katie, we were talking about crones and... One of the things that I learned recently is that the word crone actually comes from the word carrion, like it's associated (laughs) with decay and death. And so a a lot of folks also link the word crone and crown. I actually wrote a piece recently called Crowning the Crone, um, which I, I think is lovely, important work that you're doing is trying to elevate the crone to that level of majesty again. Um, But but you're also not one to shy away from death and decay and darkness. And so I'm wondering, how do you balance that interest in death and darkness Mm. with your devotion to beauty? Well, to me, they are one in the same. Not in a literal sense, not that I'm like, death is beautiful, but I've always found such beauty in the dark. Like, I'm a big horror movie fan, so I find a lot of beauty and amazing things in horror movies where other people may not see that. So for me personally, it's kind of an organic, it all just comes from the same place for me. And what's funny is that I've had people tell me that they think my work is scary. And I don't think my work is scary. And I'm like, if I wanted to make something scary, <laughs> like I could make something really scary. So I think that my work compared to what has gone through my head or what I've seen. I'm like, this is not scary. Well, you also have a really good sense of humor. And that's something that always appeals to me are people and creators who approach the content of I don't know, darkness and death with their tongue in their cheek. Like I'm, I'm thinking of some of your titles. You have a painting called My Ghosty is Gonna Get Ya. <laughs> and you have another one called The Hoof Situation. Oh, yeah. Which is just, it just makes me laugh every time I read it. Um, so is humor something that you're trying to channel through your work consciously? I think, I mean, no. The thing about my work is that the work that actually happens the pieces that actually get done are the ones that have come organically from wherever it comes from so the title my ghost is gonna get you 
that just pops into my head one day and I just started laughing to myself. <laughs> and I think I think the humorous parts of it, they they sort of arrive naturally, but I do once they do pop up, I'm like, oh yeah. I get excited about it and I, I do make a point to put them in there somewhere just to make myself laugh. Yeah, yeah. Especially the the work of the last series I did, like the hoof situation is a good example and I'll describe it quickly. It's a basically a inside a house and there's an older woman sitting on a chair with her feet propped up on an ottoman but instead of feet she has little like pig hooves <laughs> and there's another older woman who's standing there looking down at her and she's just kind of like she's just sort of shaking her head like I don't I I don't know how to help you <laughs> that and then there's you got this, me I do ugh. And then there's this... Honey, I hate um, to say it, but you're fucked. <laughs> you're kind of fucked. And then there's this younger woman staying there with a tray of, like, herbs and stuff, and she just looks totally freaked out. And I I just thought that the dynamic between the three was really funny. It was making me laugh. Oh, well, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so speaking of things that you've done, your most recent project is so staggering. So you have a book out that you... I want to call you the illustrator of it, but you're so much more. Um, It's a book called Literary Witches, and it's essentially a compendium of female writers throughout history and cross-culturally that you and the author of the book, whose name I am so scared to say out loud that I'm going to let you say it just because it's beautiful and I'm going to mess it up. (laughs) So so the author is... Taisia Kataiskaya. Yes. And so Taisia Kitaiskaya and you, you all right, have essentially, you know, worked in this very collaborative way. There are how many uh, female writers that are featured in the book? There are 30. Okay. So 30 of these writers and each, I'll call them entry for each writer, is broken up in a really specific format. So first of all, there's a beautiful portrait that you've done of the writer. And then facing the portrait is a written section. And it always starts with this very lyrical, surreal kind of take on the writer. I'm I'm actually going to read one. That would be great. Yeah. So this one is for the author Leslie Marmon Silco. Ah. Uh, I love her. Some of you might be familiar with her novel Ceremony, which you may have read in school or elsewhere. Uh, She's a Native American author. And her entry is Storyteller of Rattlesnakes, Turquoise, and the Sacred Desert. And the entry says... The drought has gone on too long, so Leslie tries something new. She roams the arroyos in a mountain lion's shape, talking to the sky. The next morning, rain fills the paw prints in Leslie's yard. (laughs) So as you can see, so beautiful. But but also, I mean, almost feels like an invocation or a channeled text or, you know, a much more lyrical, impressionistic conjuring of this writer into the room or on the page. And and then those segments are followed by a more traditional paragraph or two biography of the writer and then a recommended reading list from kind of a selection of the writer's work. So all of this to say, it's a really unusual and magical approach to 
cataloging feminist literary history. So first and foremost, can you just share with us how the idea for literary witches started between the two of you? Yes, but first I have to acknowledge that Pam Grossman, our wonderful host, of this podcast wrote the most beautiful foreword for this book. Oh, you old so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> a foreword that's, that, that is so important because it connects the witch as like the capital W witch archetype sort of with what we're doing and brings it all into context. And it was the foreword that helped like my dad understand what was going on. Oh. Well, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you Are you wonderful. kidding me? Thank you so much. Sorry, I keep cutting you off while you're trying to thank me so I can interject and thank you um, because I was just so honored to be asked and I'm such a fan of both of your work. So to get to be part of this in, in some small way was a deep, deep honor. So thank you. Good. So yeah, okay. so how did, how did this project begin? Well, so I'm going to say... Taisia Kataiskaya is a genius, and she's a poet and a fellow from the Missioner Center at UT here in Austin. And she writes unlike anyone I've ever, anything I've ever known. And it was her idea. We originally were going to collaborate on a book collection of her amazing, now defunct, but amazing advice column, Ask Baba Yaga. That particular project fell through it actually became a book later on with a different illustrator a wonderful but, book by the way everyone go highly out recommend grab ask baba yaga it's incredible it's totally incredible so we were like oh bummer and then taya uh, she goes by taya casually so i'll refer to her as that so taya was like well i have this idea for what if all these great women writers were witches and Originally, the idea was sort of like a tarot card, and we started kind of playing with that, and then that idea just fell away, and then it just became about taking these amazing female writers and reimagining them as something magical, and Taya interpreting that with words and me interpreting that with an image. And so it was her idea off the bat, but it became very, very very collaborative mm. um it's funny because I've never I've always been a totally solo it's I've never really collaborated before with anyone but it, it was so organic and our vision it was like a mind meld we totally saw the same thing and it is a very unique sort of structure and approach but it made perfect sense to both of us yeah yeah um, I, I love that idea of collaboration and it being this new way to work and it brings to my mind the concept of the third mind which the writer William S. Burroughs and the artist Brian Geisen kind of codified uh, they, they had a book that came out gosh I want to say it was in the 70s yeah 1977 and then in English in 1978 and this was based on Brian Geisen's cut up techniques uh-huh. so he would and Burroughs did this too where they would you know cut up bits of language or newspaper or whatever and then put them together in new ways but it was also about them collaborating and how when two different entities 
are working in sync with each other this kind of third mind takes over and it becomes this alchemical new other um so so it sounds like that was your experience with taya working on this absolutely um i think about the images or the illustrations i did and i'm like i never would have done anything like this if i hadn't if we hadn't been ping-ponging with each other and if I hadn't had her words to illustrate off of and even though my work is illustrative you know it tells a story there's characters my work up until this point was never actually illustration because there's never actually a text that's not true there you know from time to time I would do a little painting for like the original Cinderella or something so that was illustration but this was illustration in its purest form And it was so exciting to me because even though I've loved working as a fine artist, I've been like, when do I get to illustrate a book? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk through like, how did you first and foremost come up with the list of writers that you wanted to include? Oh my gosh. That was so, that was the hardest part. They were like the obvious ones, right? It was like Sylvia Plath. Yeah. And we were like Sylvia Plath or Anne Sexton. We're like, ah, ah, because they kind of filled the same space. Uh, and we were like, ah, oh, we gotta do Sylvia, cause just cause, cause people love her so much, and so that's a Mary tough Sh- call, though, man. I gotta say, like, I, I, I feel compelled to, yeah, like, yeah. be like, but, but, Anne, da 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 da, and I'm sure you had that same yeah. debate back and forth, on and on. Well, the the tricky thing we also we had to keep a lot of things in mind when doing this. We had to keep diversity and inclusion in mind the whole way through. Abs- like number one, we had to keep a balance of obscure and well-known mm. and I think we chose Sylvia because of her how known she is sure so we would have like this insane list of like I don't know 50 and we would have the ones that were like like I am not budging on this and Shirley Jackson for both of us was like absolutely must do Shirley Jackson oh yeah I think in the beginning I was like I'm totally gonna do this project but on one condition that we do Shirley Jackson. She's my fa- <laughs> she's my favorite writer. Yeah. And there were some other ones that we both personally felt so strong about. So those were like confirmed. As we were working on the book, we would meet maybe every couple weeks or so with a list that we inevitably added to because Taya would have read about some amazing Japanese writer or one of us had remembered someone else. And uh, so the list would get longer and then we would have to like do brutal cuts. And it was always this discussion of like, is she a witch? Mm. <laughs> and we, we were very broad with that term, of course, but we had to feel some power or some, there had to be a significance a lot of times with her work or there had to be a weight or something. And I, I don't want to say we were going just for people who wrote dark things because that's not what it was. But a good example of it was we debated a lot on like Harper Lee Mm. who didn't make the book. And I was like, but it's Harper Lee. Mm -hmm. Like that's important. And she didn't make it because by the end I saw, I was like, you know, I don't know if tonally if she's the right. And now I feel like there's a bunch of people out there getting mad. (laughs) <laughs> about to, like love Harper Lee. Hardcore to kill I, a mockingbird fans just like writing love, furious emails at us as we speak. Yeah, happening. Sorry guys. I love her too, but there was just an indescribable thing about the writer 
that we both kind of had to sense or feel. That's um, so interesting. But, and it's hard to articulate, I imagine. Like, I'm trying to, but it's hard. Yeah. So I, I can. And I, I now agree that Harper Lee wasn't a right choice for the book even though I kind of fought for it at first. Fair enough. I mean, look, I feel like an argument could be made for pretty much any creator that art and magic are deeply related to each other, if not are one and the same. And yet I can also see that if you were trying to execute on this specific archetype of the witch, that sure, if someone has work that feels a little more uncanny or ritualistic or, you know, weird or shadowy, that they might get preferential treatment for this project. Yeah, like from the beginning, we were like, "Yeah, I know Jane Austen's not in this thing." <laughs> you know, we we were like, "Nope." <laughs> Sorry, Jane. She gets a lot of attention. It's okay. Yeah, I think she's, she's okay. She's probably she's good not. with it. Um, and the other thing about it was the author had to sort of resonate first with Taya because we got into a rhythm of Taya writing the text first and then sending it to me and then me illustrating it. So it started with her. And so she had to get a sense. She had to resonate with the woman Mm -hmm. to write about her, to conjure her in the way she did. Fair enough. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Well, the book is absolutely splendid. And Taya's writing and your illustrations are gorgeous, but it's also just a a beautifully made book. It's a gorgeous Mm -hmm. object. So for those of you listening who haven't seen it yet you should definitely go to your local shop and grab yourself a copy or order one online it's it's a treasure it really is congratulations thank you so much so i want to talk about in our final moments do you identify as a witch is that do you have a specific more literal ritual practice or is being an artist the way in which you're expressing your witchiness or or both it's funny, like I, I, I want to identify as a witch so bad, and I think, and I do. Oh, just do I, it. Okay, I'm a witch. <laughs> I am. Breaking but... news: Katie Horan <laughs> is a witch. You heard it here first. I think I've been insecure in the past because I don't really um, have like a traditional spiritual practice, and not for lack of trying. I've totally dabbled and. The thing about it is I, I never, I've never felt comfortable doing it. Um, I've always had a lot of doubt. Like it's a skeptic in my head that gets real loud when I'm doing it. But despite that, weird stuff has happened. The few times that I've like really sort of done like a ritual or something, like spooky stuff's gone down that surprised me and also kind of freaked me out. Mm. Uh, in a sense that where I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. So I don't, I don't practice in that way. And I do think that my work is my practice because I do have a weird sense of conjuring something sometimes. So I like to believe that that's my own personal little tradition there. Yeah, I feel really strongly that the word witch is shape-shifting in itself and is elastic and frankly that's one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to 
explore all the different entry points into that word and sometimes it is people who are literal practitioners and maybe they consider themselves Wiccan or pagan but sometimes it's people who identify really deeply with the archetype or who use their intuition in more conscious ways or who are conjuring change through their artwork or through the ways in which they're living their lives so I consider you a witch, Katie, if it helps. Yes. And, and I feel like I know what I'm talking about with that. You do. If you, <laughs> if you deem me a witch, then, then like, that's it. No one can argue. So mote it be. Um, and then just finally, is there anything specifically coming up for you that you want to share with our listeners? Any projects that you're working on? And, and also, how can they find you online? Right. Well, um, my website is katieart.com and that is katie with a y so k-a-t-y-a-r-t.com right now i am making pieces for a two-person show i'm having at gallery here in austin called icosa gallery that is special because it is run by an artist collective that i am a part of the collective is called icosa collective it's Right now, I believe, I think there's 16 of us, but it's an amazing group of Austin artists. We run a space on the east side of Austin, and every month we show two of our members. And in February, it's going to be me and a phenomenal artist and very, very good friend named Teruko Nomura, a Japanese-American artist who does incredible work surrounding Japanese identity and history. And I'll be showing works that are sort of a continuation of my series um, that I did before the book called Goodly Wicked. Oh, I um, love that series. Yeah. Which is um, sort of based on my research of Appalachian, Ozark, and Southern folklore and um, witch lore. Just really weird stuff. There's going to be some weird stuff. <laughs> it's like a, it's like paper mache heads. It's going to be crazy. Wow. Uh, but I'm excited to be back in the fine art mind for a little while. And that is, I believe, opening February 16th. Awesome. Awesome. And you have a really gorgeous Instagram, too. What, what's your Instagram handle again? It's Goody Haran, like I'm a Puritan lady. <laughs> so <laughs> G-O-O-D-Y-H-O-R-A-N. Awesome. And I, I highly encourage everybody to check out Katie's work. My cat just jumped up on uh, the oh. table as soon as you started talking about it. So Albie also thinks you should all go right to Instagram <laughs> or right to Katie's website and check out all her marvelous witches and lace-faced lady monsters. Katie, yeah. thank you so much for joining us on The Witch Wave. It was a delight to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I loved it. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Katie Haran for beaming her beautifully dark-hearted self into this episode. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Email me at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com and I might answer your question on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal and the magical Matt Freeman. 
You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us lots of shimmery stars. It makes a huge difference. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have an iPhone, you might adore my witch emoji for iMessage. Fill your texts with images of witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors by searching for witch emoji, all one word, in the App Store, or by going to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.